The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Our guest this week is journalist Mark Mathis, president of Clear Energy Alliance at clearenergyalliance.com. We had Mark on the show back in June, and he did such a fine job, we had to have him on again. This time, we'll be talking about the transition from the carbohydrate era to the hydrocarbon era, defining each of those eras in the process. Mark is a former TV news reporter and anchor turned media consultant and trainer. He's the writer and narrator of the documentary film Fractured, which is available at clearenergyalliance.com. As I said before, I encourage listeners to check out that site for truly superb short videos on energy. So that's clearenergyalliance.com. Mark's specialty and passion is collecting and curating information and making what would appear complex to be quite simple and accessible to the public, as Fractured certainly is. During his time working in the media, Mark learned that the news are, is often slanted by journalists who are either ignorant or arrogant or both or driven by ideological agendas. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here again. Yeah, it's good to have you on again. I want our listeners uh, to know again about the greatest energy educational film documentary that has ever been made. And uh, I, I think I'm well positioned to say that. I've been working in the energy field for 40 years, uh, teaching everything from uh, nuclear physics down to uh, how to make a clean coal plant and everything in between. And uh, early this year, I got an opportunity to watch uh, Mark's actually 2016 film called Fractured. And uh, it was uh, just amazing. I mean, I've been in the field for 40 years and here Mark makes a film that as far as I could tell, uh, had all the information it taken me 40 years to, to learn. And I think I'm now working on the, uh, the eighth article directly from the film. And Mark's been kind enough to uh, edit uh, my transcripts of the sections and make sure they were up to date when I'm finished. So it is really exciting to uh, have you on the program again, Mark, and, and talk about the film. So let me start off uh, by a new idea. You really coined the phrase. Uh, carbohydrate era, and, and then we'll talk about the shift to the hydrocarbon era. But what do you mean by the carbohydrate era, Mark? Well, this is uh, the time when from the very beginning of human existence until 
you know, roughly the late 17th century, uh, because the vast majority of what, how people lived their lives was through carbohydrates. So this is, you know, you feed a, you know, your animals that can help you uh, once agriculture became uh, a thing, or if you in the hunter gatherer era, uh, era, you would, uh, you know, you would you fashion, you know, your spears and, and uh, your weapons in order to, you know, hunt animals. Uh, but you would make your, you know, your, your dwellings, you know, your huts, your homes, everything's carbohydrate based, uh, whether it's the food you're eating or the wood that you're using to construct uh, where you live, everything in your life for the vast majority of people is essentially, uh, it's uh, the energy that you use, the energy that you then produce yourself through the food that you eat, everything is carbohydrate based. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, the, the, you know, the late 17th century when we really started using uh, hydrocarbons in order to create machines to do all this work to, un, you know, unleash the Industrial Revolution. But even though in those earlier times when, when people were, you know, societies were figuring out how to use uh, hydrocarbons, coal and, and oil, especially um, they, this, this was not a widespread thing. This was, you know, very, you know, this was not the vast majority of people just didn't have access to it. They didn't use it in any significant way. Everything was dominated by carbohydrates. What was it like living in the carbohydrate age? I mean, we hear people constantly <laughs> thinking of the good old days. I don't <laughs> remember anything good in the old days in my own life. Uh, things have just improved every step of the way, at least perhaps until the, we elected uh, the, the current president. I mean, I've just seen life getting better and easier all along. What was, what was it like living in the carbohydrate age compared to the life we have lived in the past half century? Yeah, the, um, this is the problem with nostalgia. And this happens, uh, you know, throughout history where you people imagine that oh yes I liked I would wanted this simpler time uh this would have been so much nicer look I feel it myself I kind of wish that in some ways not 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 others but in some ways that you know I, I like the the slower pace and whatnot of when I was a kid versus how it is now but uh, but then you have to start to think about, well, about all of the advances that have taken place and the things that you quickly become, you know, ingrained in how you live and you take these things for granted. So if we were to go back to the carbohydrate uh, age and you don't have any of the, the technologies that you use for how you live your life, you got no electricity, so you're getting your light, you know, once the sun goes down, you're getting your light, you know, with a candle. Uh, or, you know, when it comes to eating, you're, you can't really store much. I mean, you can dry some things, but uh, you've got to be, you know, the whole process of keeping yourself alive is really forefront in your mind. How do you know the, the process of getting water just to go down to the water source, a, a creek or a river and, and, and to get that water or, you know, later on in the carbohydrate age where you could have a, a well. Uh, that you would that you would dig, but even you know, creating that that wells to get to use groundwater for your water source. This is it's an enormous task, and so 
you know, your life was very difficult. Uh, if you injured yourself, it was likely to be a lifelong injury. You didn't have any, um, you know, modern medicine to help you out. So, you know, that, that injury would, 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 would hurt you, bother you for the rest of your life. I mean, you just imagine, you know, we're severely breaking an ankle, let's say, uh, during the carbohydrate age. That, that's not something you could ever really uh, recover from. Uh, and lifespans were, you know, 30, 35 years old. And that's about you, all you could really expect. You know, if you, if you were 50 years old and the carbohydrate age, you were an old person. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the, uh, the world around you is far more dangerous, uh, far less clean. Uh, you, the the uh, difficulty in getting food in, in adequate amounts and the dependency that you had on the weather, you know, the weather could just do a lot to really wreck your life through floods and droughts and, and uh, heat waves, the kinds of things we get from nature. So this was not a, you know, <laughs> you know, this utopian existence, like uh, people who are, you know, professionally, uh, you know, abuse uh, fossil fuels want you to believe this is a very difficult, short, you know, lots of hard labor. That's how you lived your life. And it, it this was, uh, it was difficult, very difficult. Mm -hmm. So how did the hydrocarbon era come about? Was it, you say it was pretty gradual at first, there was just a small number of people that used hydrocarbons. How, how did it actually come about? You know, the, the, the I mean, this, the, the, the small amounts of hydrocarbons that were used. I mean, this goes back, you know, many centuries, maybe even, you know, thousands of years, you know, but it wasn't until that, you know, the, the industrial revolution, you know, when you, when you, you get, start using coal, uh, you know, in, in significant amounts in, in order to produce heat, you know, heating and cooking and these sorts of things. And then, and then where you start uh, uh, producing steel, uh, this is where everything just really went, um, uh, you know, off the charts. I mean, you can look at, you know, every, you know, positive uh, measurement that you can look at in, you know, the modern world. And you can see where the, the upper trajectory comes up, you know, in the, in the late 18th century. And then you get through the end of the 19th century and things really start taking off, especially when we uh, commercially can now produce oil and do all, start doing all the things that we can use oil for, and this is late 1850s, and then natural gas. We start heating homes with natural gas in the 1920s. And this is uses this massive upward trajectory in quality of life and life expectancy, which more than doubled uh, per capita incomes that have just continued to go up, 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 and up. Uh, world population, of course, uh, along, along the way. So as far as the hydrocarbon age, we've really only been in it in a significant way for, um, you know, it's, it's only been maybe, you know, about 100 years, 120, 140 years, you know, mm -hmm. depending on your number. This is really this very, really, very short period of time. I wanted uh, people to know a date where very significant in the United States and I wrote an article uh, last week uh, that I published at cfact.org uh, uh, on the Drake well. Uh, Edwin Drake uh, drilled the first uh, professional commercial oil well in uh, 1859 in Pennsylvania. Uh, that's not that long ago, but it's kind of been forgotten and he's been forgotten. 
And I thought it would be nice to uh, bring back uh, his story. He was a retired railroad uh, conductor that had an interest in oil, and he got some friends to finance him uh, to drill a well uh, near a place that was called Oil Creek in central Pennsylvania. It was called Oil Creek because there was oil seeping in the, from the banks of the, uh, the stream into the creek. And uh, he reasoned that uh, if he drilled a well near the creek, that he would hit oil. And uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't easy to do. And he got down uh, 69 feet. And sure enough, the oil uh, really rose up to the surface in the well. And that was the first commercial oil well in America. Uh, perhaps in the world, other countries have uh, claimed that they have drilled oil wells, but none were uh, as well documented as the Drake well. So uh, your point is that uh, the hydrocarbon age and uh, using oil commercially is, is relatively recent. I consider uh, 1859 recent, but uh, things really uh, took off from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a neat little place where uh, Edwin Drake drilled his well. Uh, it's called Titusville. When we were making my first documentary film, Spoiled, we went to Titusville uh, and it's just a, a neat little town. And so, you know, we just walked around and saw some of the, uh, the museums and uh, this, this stuff that's still there uh, that, you know, honors the, the first commercial well drilled in, in Pennsylvania. It's really, it's really neat stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing people often say is that when coal came on, it ruined the environment. And yet I would say the opposite, at least at the beginning, because they had cut down virtually all the trees in England before coal came. And that's now being, I, I assume, regrown. And, and also, I understand that there's more forest now in New England than there was at the time of the Civil War. So at least at the beginning, coal was an environmental boon, wasn't it? Well, yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, and the, the English were forced to do it because, as you say, they you know, cut down most of their trees just to you know, cook food, build things, uh, heat, heat you know, their, their homes. And you know, they were forced, you know, this is just you know, necessity being the mother invention, uh, to, to find out a way to use coal to, to do some of the things that they needed to do that they could replace you know, with, with trees, which are much less dense of, a, of an energy resource. So in the early years, decades, uh, coal dust was a real problem. Uh, and of course, coal mining was also a very dangerous activity. Uh, you know, in those days, you know, the coal dust would just settle on everything. Uh, and so it was kind of a hazard, but of course, those, that's all changed dramatically. And, you know, with the, in the hydrocarbon age, and especially the latter hydrocarbon age, our air is much, much cleaner today than it was when we were kids. Mm, uh, yeah. And it's, it has to do with a technological innovation with uh, our coal plants being much cleaner, uh, a transition to a natural gas, our use of nuclear for, you know, for generating electricity as well. There's a lot of factors that go into it, but our environment is much, much cleaner because of our use of hydrocarbons uh, than if we didn't have them. If you want to see, if you want to see what your 
environment would look like. If you're concerned about a clean environment, well, all you got to do is to go to a third world type country and mm-hmm. you'll see some of the worst environmental conditions you can imagine, the most pollution. I mean, as an example, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, plastics and especially plastics getting into the ocean. This is a very bad thing, uh, except that this is not a bad thing in America. We're responsible for uh, some, somewhere less than uh, 1% of the global plastic problem. Uh, the, the giant plastic problems happening in Asia. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's China, it's, uh, it's, it's Thailand, Indonesia. These are the countries that are, that are pumping massive amounts of plastic, you know, just, you know, just pushing it into the ocean and, and, uh, and really doing a lot of damage to our oceans. But that's not when you have an advanced culture that uses a lot of hydrocarbon energy, these societies are the cleanest societies on the planet. I'd like to talk a little more about coal. Um, everybody maybe has heard the term clean coal, but considering uh, the media and the government's uh, plans now for over a decade to shut down our coal power plants, uh, they may not believe there's such a thing as clean coal. Uh, I'm working on an article to explain simply what a uh, coal-fired power plant is like when built today. Uh, It goes through many, many different chemical processes and we really do produce energy from coal today uh, with no pollution at all, really, no emissions uh, that are hazardous to anybody's health. But we really are going to have to battle to bring back coal. It, it's rising all over the world. You know, we tried to shut down coal and have more windmills and sun, which are a total, uh, ultimately a total failure. But uh, coal is coming back all over the world. And the, the modern coal plant uh, is very clean. And the other point you brought up, Mark, is, you know, initially, when you start into hydrocarbons, you know, there may be some contamination uh, that wasn't there before. But as you develop it, uh, it, it goes in the other direction. And as, as Tom brought out, uh, ultimately, the hydrocarbon age has brought on uh, the cleanest air, the cleanest water, and, and reduced uh, contamination dramatically. And that's kind of the way it always works. When you, you start with a new technology, uh, you may be creating a, a certain amount of pollution, but as the technology improves, uh, everything goes the other way and you end up with tremendous net environmental benefits. Yeah, and, and there was nothing in all, in my opinion, that I, I'm not aware of anything that had so such a dramatic impact on the advancement of, of human societies and this thing that initially uh, had some issues. Look, you look at the early days of oil development. I mean, oil was everywhere. I mean, in Pennsylvania. I mean, the the people who were trying to develop it, develop it, they were you know they were trying to make money. They're trying to you know just a big uh, oil rush to try to get rich quick. And so it was messy, and there weren't proper regulations. And uh, so you can see some pretty nasty pictures of the way it was in the very early days. But it didn't take long for all of that to turn around. And, and get to a point where you, these, where oil drilling was regulated and those regulations have continued and have become more and more restrictive as the technology allows. But when you look at this 
this incredible resource petroleum and how we use it and the things that it replaces, the fact that you know, you've got indoor plumbing with flush toilets. I mean, this, this is all hydrocarbons that, that does all this stuff. You've got you know, big trucks that come and pick up your trash and take it to a, a, a landfill that is protected uh, so, that, so that the groundwater does not get contaminated. I mean, everything that you have, everything that you do, that you use to clean everything is petroleum-based. So it's, it, it did, as you say, Jay, just the opposite of what in the early days was, you know, messy. Then the cleanliness that has come out of this resource is just, it's so huge. It's, it's, it's virtually impossible to even imagine. Mm -hmm. And plastics, especially, I mean, plastics have been an incredible boon to health and sanitation. Absolutely. And, and you think about even things like transportation, uh, you know, you're, people, you'll hear the people who are constantly attacking uh, petroleum resources and they, they want to do away with plastics. Well, the thing that the problem that these people have is what, okay, what is your alternative? How are you going to replace that plastic uh, with, with what? Uh, and the answer in most cases is there really isn't anything, nothing that is going to be economic that's going to be, that, that is not also going to, to come with far bigger consequences than using petroleum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, so I could guarantee that all of our listeners, if they look around the room in which they're listening to this radio show, I guarantee that 80% of the items in that room would not exist without a component that comes from petroleum. Uh, it's absolutely everywhere. I mean, there are <clears throat> there are six thousand products at least that are basically in daily use that would not exist uh, without petroleum. And uh, this is probably a good place to uh, break the, our first uh, segment today. And when we come back, I want to talk about a a, a new term that you uh, developed in your movie. Uh, to replace fossil fuels. Uh, the term is tech maps. And uh, let's leave it right there. And we'll talk about that when we come back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel pack vitamins. Uh, looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell. 
the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them. And you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Before I ask you, uh, Mark, about the term that you're hoping to replace fossil fuels with, I'll, uh, it's tech maps, and I'll let you explain it in a moment. Uh, but before we, we get to it, why do you think uh, people simply do not understand the concept of having moved to the hydrocarbon age and thus are being able to be basically brainwashed by the anti-fossil fuel people uh, who unbelievably think we could replace fossil fuels with wind and solar. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. Uh, It cannot be done. Uh, It's dangerous to even begin to do it because we would lose so much uh, of life as we know it right now. But why has it been difficult to make people understand the value, the importance of the hydrocarbon age? You know, I I, I think that it comes down to really uh, poor public education. Um, I wish that someone along the way uh, had looked at this thing and said, look, why are we calling coal, oil, and natural gas fossil fuels? Uh, The the name's deceptive. Uh, They're not fossils. They're not that, yes, they they do. They are fuels, but they're much more than that. And so the the language is wrong. And this is why part of why I made the film Fractured, which is the subtitles Language, Lies, and Energy. And what we talk about in the film is that the language is deceptive. So I wish someone along the way, I mean, you know, 50, 80 years ago had said, look, let's let's categorize this thing differently, but nobody did. And then when, you know, in in earlier generations, there was a lot of emphasis placed in in primary education in talking about the importance of the Industrial Revolution uh, and how we took machines and started, it replaced our physical labor with machines. It was just an amazing thing that, that, that humans did. Uh, and, but I think that as it's taught, the emphasis is on the machines. Now the machines are of course, critically important, but the machines aren't there. They, you can't make the machines and you can't make the machines work 
without the fuel, without the, the stuff that, uh, that the materials to make the machines, first of all, and then, the, then, then to run the machines, either through uh, electricity or through liquid fuels. And so, so they, they emphasized the wrong thing um, and you know, when they should have inf- emphasized the full picture in, in education. But I think what's happened in, in recent years is I'm not sure how much of this even gets taught in, in public schools. And how much time do they spend on the industrial revolution? I think it's pretty, it's, it's sort of, you can just tell by public ignorance that it's not much. Uh, and I, I think that, it, that in order to, you know, get the public to, uh, to grasp the importance of this stuff, uh, we've got to get back into primary education. And, uh, and you know, all of the, in primary, you know, like maybe fifth, sixth, seventh grade, somewhere in that uh, range, we've got to start uh, teaching ki- kids what it is that runs their world and how, how important this stuff is. I couldn't agree more. And while the, the term you came up with, uh, tech maps, is perhaps uh, unwieldy, uh, I haven't found any, uh, any problem learning it, and I use it now in all of my, uh, my writings. The, uh, the eight letters in it stand for the eight major areas for which uh, our, our fuel allows us to uh, have the lifestyle. So for our audience, why don't you go through the eight uh, letters of the word tech maps? Sure. Uh, so it starts uh, transportation, uh, electricity, uh, you know, cooking, uh, uh, heating and cooling. That, well, that's sort of two in one. Uh, manufacturing, agriculture, and products. So eight things. Uh, and well you, well, you left out S for sanitation. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> The uh, when I made the film, I decided to leave the S off, and then I, after I made the film, I decided that I should have left it on anyway. So S is sanitation, yes. And so these are all the essential things of life. Uh, well, you know, and- I'm amazed that I've talked about it oftenly, and usually I have I've used many acronyms, but I can never quickly remember what each letter in the acronym stands for. I have never without taking any time to learn what the eight letters are, I've never uh, failed to know what they are because they're so everyday common. I mean, we're using transportation, electricity, we're cooking, we're heating and cooling, we're using manufactured products, we're involved with agriculture, we have other products. And these are everyday things in our lives. So I've had very great success when I talk about it uh, getting it through to people. Obviously, it's not something that's going to catch on quickly, and we have to redo our whole schooling system anywhere. I think the biggest problem in America is the failure of our public schools, but uh, I'm certainly going to keep on using your your idea of it in, in all my discussions. I don't ever anymore say fossil fuel without converting and, and talking about tech maps. Mm-hmm. But- yeah, the, the um, interesting thing about that, I, I spent a lot of time trying to come up with an acronym or a term, something that would work. And, the, and I settled on the acronym because uh, it is, it's retainable. You, yeah. once, you, once you learn it, you go through each of the, the letters. And, and, and if, if you're in, say, fifth or sixth grade, when you learn this stuff, 
that's going to stick in your head uh, and so that you'll always be able to retain it. I think if you learn that in the sixth grade, you know, when you're 25 years old and you're hearing people talk about, you know, getting rid of, of this, that, and the other thing, well, how are you going to do that? I mean, what's, what's the, you know, so there's a question there. I, I learned this. I understand this. What, what will you do instead? This is one of the big deceptions of the, the energy miseducators uh, out there. And there's lots of them led primarily by the, uh, the mainstream news media. But I, it's just, it, it makes me crazy that there are people don't ask the question. Reporters don't ask, don't know to ask the question or don't want to ask the question. Okay, what then will we do? if we don't do this. And there are lots of, you know, sort of throwaway lines. Oh, we're gonna do wind and solar. Well, no, you're not. Uh, for, and by the way, you don't have wind and solar without hydrocarbons. No, it's, it's involved in every part of the process. So you, you but there's no, uh, you know, we, we don't wanna use oil for transportation. Well, we're gonna just use, you know, what, EVs? Okay, well then you have to go down that road. Why is that not going to happen? Not on any grand scale like we're being promised, because you have to, you have to, you know, go, what, what, you know, they were they run on batteries. Okay, well, what are the where are the components come for those batteries? Where's that stuff mined? What are these things? Who controls all this stuff? China. Uh, so I don't know. We just need a better starting point. I think Tech Maps does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now, what would you think? What do you think of the term? mother nature <laughs> i mean that's that seems to be the the fallback for many of the environmentalists and that we're supposed to want to have mother nature as our determining factor for how we live sure yeah and and this once again goes to language which when you hear the term mother this is a this is one of the most highly positive charged words in our language you know because this is the the, the woman who gives birth to you who cares for you uh, as a child and cares for you into adulthood. This is your, your mom, your mother. Well, that, that is a really poor descriptor of nature uh, because nature is not mothering. Nature is the exact oppos opposite of that. Nature is trying to kill you with, with all sorts of things. The, the, you know, the, we've sheltered ourselves because we use hydrocarbon energy to create great ways to uh, shelter ourselves, to transport ourselves, to exist outside of the forces of nature that used to be very problematic for people who lived not that long ago in the uh, in the carbohydrate age. So mm -hmm. you know, it's nature's trying to to you know hurt you through you know excessive heat or excessive cold or through viruses or wild animals. You, you come up with, you know, hundred different things where nature is essentially trying to kill you. So we shouldn't you be know, calling it mother nature. We should be calling it something like dangerous nature. Mark, I've had uh, three real experiences with uh, mother nature trying to, uh, to kill me in some way or another, I guess through my own uh, stupidity. Uh, I was uh, lost in the woods in the winter cross country skiing in Alaska years ago and uh, trying to uh, not being prepared with enough clothing to stay overnight uh, was an experience of coming close to 
uh, freezing to death. Unfortunately, I just kept going and going and going and finally saw a light far away and tracked it down. Another experience, uh, hiking in, uh, again, my fault, I'm hiking uh, in a wooded area and missed the time, it got dark, and I was in, in, a, I was in an area where uh, there were indeed uh, animals there that were not friendly to me. Uh, I got out and I uh, hiked across the Grand Canyon at 117 uh, degrees and ran out of water and uh, another bad experience. All my fault, not being prepared, but the point being when it was me up against uh, nature, there was nothing about nature that was trying to help me. It was indeed uh, trying to harm me. That's right. And, I, and we, what's, what we've done is we've built our societies in such a way that uh, we're, we are safe and comfortable uh, the vast majority of the time. Uh, and, you know, people will complain about, oh, my gosh, it's too hot today or too cold. Uh, not thinking about the fact that we use energy every second of the day to keep our to, to get ourselves comfortable, to make ourselves comfortable. And most of us live in a comfortable you know, temperature zone uh, protected from the, uh, the elements, you know, almost all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, the Michael Crichton's book, State of Fear, actually gets into the real danger of Mother Nature and, in fact, how, how we are so fragile. So I think that's something that the environmentalists are completely naive about. So what do you think is the main driver behind this move away from the hydrocarbon age? I mean, it sounds like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. Yeah, I, I, I think what we've got all, really all over the, the Western world these days is there is a, a movement, a political movement, and it's about control. Uh, we have some, uh, some people in power or who want to be in power or people who want to, they want to control how you live. And there is the way to control people uh, is through how they consume energy. Uh, it's, there's no better, easier way to, to, to um, exert that control than through uh, controlling how people consume energy. So I, I think that really is at the, the core of it. Many people have heard the term carbon neutral or uh, zero emission, uh, both of which to me are uh, dumb and, and I don't think people understand them. What, how would you explain the terms carbon neutral or zero emission to our listeners to understand how ridiculous they are? You know, I'll, I'll start by saying I wish that the people pushing this um, misinformation of carbon neutrality would define it for me because the, the, the idea is so ridiculous. It's just said. So people pushing the agenda who will just say it, people in the mainstream media who will repeat it, but you, you, they aren't, they aren't stopping and saying, define this thing for me. What do you mean carbon neutral? Well, okay, so at the, the, the first level, what they'll tell you is that this means we're going to generate 
our electricity. So this is only a piece of how we power our world. But we're going to generate our electricity not using you know, natural gas and, and coal. Uh, we don't generate much electricity, a little bit, not much with oil. But th- th- we're not going to use hydrocarbons to generate electricity. And that's, that, that's their, the basic definition that they would, if pressed, that they would probably uh, give you. But that's not even possible. Um, and <laughs> the, the idea that you're, the things that you're creating in order to generate the electricity, the technologies, so wind and solar that, that capture intermittent you know, energy and then turn it into electricity, Okay, then you're somehow you're going to be, you know, net zero or zero carbon if you do that. The president of the United States has said that, oh, we're going to do this by 2035. Well, that's that's insane. There's no way that's happening by 2035. It's probably not going to happen by 2100. There's 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 so many different breakthroughs that would have to happen to make that even possible, because wind and and solar are fundamentally um, disruptive and destabilizing to the consistency of the electric grid. Uh, So, and those technologies are completely dependent upon uh, hydrocarbons for their construction, uh, you know, for the the, the mining of materials that goes into them, uh, for the manufacturing of these things, uh, and the transportation, the installation, and the disposal. All of that stuff is completely dependent upon hydrocarbon energy. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the thing about renewables, this another highly deceptive term that is out there, is to keep in mind about that is renewables must always be renewed. So solar panels, we're being told, okay, those are going to last then 20 years. Well, in most cases, they don't, either through breakage, uh, you know, damage that happens because of you know, weather, uh, or they just wear out uh, faster than the manufacturer uh, thought they would, or there's a, an, an upgrade to the technology. So they're constantly having to be uh, you know, re, uh, uh, taken offline and disposed of. And the wind turbines and the, the solar panels are highly toxic. Uh, and disposing of them is a one is going to be one of the gigantic environmental challenges of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. the elephant in the room that we haven't mentioned that uh, drives these absurd ideas of doing away with hydrocarbons is the climate change fraud. Uh, the people who you so correctly describe are really trying to control society by controlling energy are telling uh, everybody that life as we know it uh, will perish if uh, we continue to have carbon dioxide emissions, which are going to increase the temperature of the earth and, uh, and destroy life as we know it. We know it's entirely a fraud. Uh, carbon di- you cannot measure any impact that carbon dioxide has on the, uh, the temperature of the planet. Uh, and yet it's that fear that gets people to ignore all the common sense you've been describing about we can't have life as we know it without hydrocarbons. Uh, so it's one of the topics that you know Tom and I are on all the time, trying to uh, dispel the fraud, you know, the myth 
that really drives the whole wagon uh, of doing away with uh, fossil fuels, which cannot be done. Can we go back? Yeah, I agree, Jay. Can we go back to the business of wind and solar leading to an unstable grid? Can you explain why that is, Mark, and whether that's really important? Well, it's extremely important. You have um, what we call baseload power. And so that's just the power that keeps the grid uh, stable. So we get that from coal, uh, from nuclear, and to some degree, natural gas. Then you have the unreliables, which are wind and solar, and they are putting electricity into the system on an inconsistent basis. So it's, uh, you know, the wind's, you know, whipping up and you're getting a certain amount of electricity uh, that's being delivered to consumers. And then suddenly the wind dies down and you have a lot less electricity being produced. Well, as we balance the needs of the grid, that electricity must be replaced by something else. And so you have this third category, which is balancing. So we use typically natural gas is what we use to balance out the giant fluctuations that happen between wind and solar uh, in order to keep the grid stable. Uh, the grid in the United States runs at 60 Hertz. So that's 60 cycles per second. And the margin for error is incredibly small. We can't get outside of, of a one Hertz. Uh, so it's half a Hertz on either side of that. 60 hertz. So you get 60 and a half hertz, you, you know, you're, you're, that's dead. You're getting in trouble. You get to 59 and a half, you're in trouble. You got to stay in this really thin zone. Well, what we have with wind and solar is a constant push of electricity and then a with, withdrawal of electricity that happens continually. And so the people who run the grid have to constantly balance this stuff out with natural gas, spinning power that's just right there ready to go when it's needed, uh, which increases the cost of, of our electricity and it destabilizes the system. Well, if you put maybe five, 6% of your electricity needs that are being delivered by wind and solar, it's okay, you can balance that out. It's not, it's not ideal, but you can do it. Okay, but now you start using say 20, 25, 30% uh, of your electricity is being provided by wind and solar. Now your fluctuations are going to be much, much larger. And the having the ability, how are you going to balance, keep the grid stable at 60 Hertz? It's a very, very challenging thing to do. And as we put more and more um, uh, wind and solar online, that challenge is going to be, to, is going to continue to grow and it's going to grow to the point where we're going to have a catastrophe. What role does China play uh, in all this? Uh, we clearly, you've described a, a, a coming disaster if the powers that be keep pushing for more wind and solar and unstable grids and uh, reduction of all the use of hydrocarbons. I've got a feeling that uh, communist China uh, is, is playing a role in some way in uh, pushing us uh, down a trail to destruction. Uh, how would you describe that? Uh, absolutely. They're, they're, for starters, we are destabilizing our own electric grids in the Western world ourselves. We're doing it to ourselves voluntarily. 
China is pushing this along by using slave labor to produce solar panels and, and wind turbines to undercut the world market on delivering those products to Western nations. Okay, so they're dumping uh, economically on us. Uh, and then we're, our own governments are pushing these destabilizing electricity generation sources on us. So our grid, the backbone of our society is being made less and less stable over time as we put more and more uh, unreliable electricity generation into the mix. So China loves that. They're making a lot of money off of the, uh, the product that they're producing for us at cheap, you know, essentially, you know, very low or even slave labor in some cases. So they're winning on that end. On the other end, they're acting as if they're going to play along with this fraud, but they're building coal plants as fast as they can. They've been doing it for a couple of decades. They are the world's number one manufacturer of coal plants around the world. They're essentially buying off Africa with coal power. Uh, and they're, they're, they're putting uh, coal plants in all over the world. At the same time, they, with a straight face, they're saying that they're going to be carbon neutral, whatever that is, uh, by 2060. Of course, that is a joke. Uh, they're, the coal plants, they've got a large coal fleet that's fairly young. This, this, these coal plants are going to run for 60, 70 years. Uh, China is simply saying preposterously untrue things, and our leaders are acting as if those things that they're saying are true, and our ignorant, arrogant news media isn't either does isn't smart enough to know this stuff is ridiculous, or they don't care to, to tell people that it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's it going to take for people to wake up to these fundamental energy realities, Mark? I, you know, I, people like us, we're doing everything that we can to produce content. I do it at Clear Energy Alliance with these short videos. I've done it with my films, Spoiled and Fractured. Uh, you guys put out your content. We're on social media. We're doing everything we can to try to get people to see what is happening here. Uh, and we will continue, people like us will continue to do this. Uh, I think we need to have a bigger push when it comes to primary education. It's probably, it's going to have to start with homeschoolers. You know, we're going to have to produce our own textbooks uh, and start them with homeschoolers. And to, these very important energy realities need to be uh, taught to young people so that they they have some of this knowledge and they won't be, it won't be so easy to lie to them and fill their heads with fantasies. But also all of that needs to continue to go on. But I tell you, I, there's a big part of me that just thinks uh, it's going to take pain. Uh, you know, let, let's look, for example, at what's happening in Europe right now. So Europe has completely done what we're doing. They're undermining the strength uh, and, the, and the stability of their electric grid uh, by putting way too much wind and solar into the system. And then suddenly nature decides, eh, I'm gonna dial back the wind for a while. And they're not getting nearly as much uh, electricity through their wind turbines as they anticipated. 
and they're struggling in a major way. Their, their electricity prices are going through the roof. Germany's leading the way in Europe with their Energy Windy program, which stands for Transition to Renewables, and their, their energy prices are, are, are three times what ours are. Uh, they're, <laughs> they, they've bought into the fantasy, and then you're now they're, they're starting to get the pain of super high prices for their electricity, uh, and that's, that's going to be bad. That's going to start waking some people up. I don't know if it'll be enough. I well, I, I, I think you're right, Mark, and uh, it may not be enough, but I am looking toward a winter of discontent. I think we're going to see problems, particularly in the United Kingdom, uh, this winter. They're in, in major trouble with terrible uh, Boris Johnson leading them uh, in the wrong direction on uh, energy. Uh, you've already mentioned uh, Germany, but I think all of Europe is uh, is going to struggle this winter, and it's going to be the beginning of a wake-up call. And uh, I think most of our listeners will read about it this winter and see the problems that are being incurred uh, in Britain and in Europe, and they'll begin to wake up. I think it will be a, a process that might take a few years, but I'm very optimistic that uh, we're we're going to be beginning for people to uh, to see the light. Mm -hmm. You might be interested in Ontario. We had a tripling of energy price uh, and people are still supporting it. So I think it's going to take more than price. I think it's going to take where the temperature is minus 30 outside and we have no power. Right. I think you're going to have to start seeing people die and things like Texas occurring over and over and over, except worse because the grid could have collapsed, of course. So in the case of Texas, it was largely the wind turbines that did this, right? It was a, uh, a dependence on wind turbines, uh, which then allowed the ERCOT to, uh, to allow the Public Utility Commission, the state legislature, the, the loss of thermal energy power or not building more thermal energy power. So I mean, uh, you know, nuclear uh, and coal, natural gas, because the state has been growing uh, significantly uh, and you know, millions of people over the last decade. And so you need more power, you need to generate more power, but there hasn't been more in the way of coal, natural gas uh, and nuclear brought into the system, just a bunch of wind. And so that was the fundamental problem that happened in Texas in February was that the wind, they knew the wind wasn't gonna produce much in, uh, in the way of electricity on these super cold days. They had a couple of uh, you know, power plants that were offline for maintenance, a couple of other things of problems here and there. And then you had this you know, really severe cold that happened uh, and, the, and we came very close to having the grid completely collapse, would have been, which would have been the catastrophe, the greatest catastrophe in my view uh, in the history of the United States. I mean, I think, I think a million people would have died because it would have taken you months to get your grid back up, maybe not even months, maybe longer. Um, this is the kind of event that I think is, I almost think is gonna have to happen somewhere where you're, the grid goes down, uh, it, the da there's damage done to transformers, power lines, uh, electric utilities, uh, and then wherever this happens, you're going to have um, it's going to take a long time to get the grid back up and running and people are going to die in large numbers. 
Mm-hmm. I think so when that work. kind of event happens, then people are going to say, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's interesting. When I grew up, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And even in Canada, we were we were concerned because we weren't that far from the border. And my dad would stockpile food. And that was just normal. He did that for decades. It sounds like if people don't smarten up with respect to energy, they better start stockpiling food. I, I think that... Um, Anybody who doesn't have a couple weeks, two or three weeks worth of food in their house is not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that people should have uh, a few five gallon, uh, you know, gasoline, uh, you know, uh, what you call in Canada, jerry cans. Yeah. Uh, You should have a few of those on hand uh, because when these things happen, they happen fast, and then you're caught flat-footed. Uh, and you know, here in Texas, we had uh, during this freeze, and you know, they, we, there were some, there were rolling blackouts, and some people were without power for uh, four days. Uh, but you know, in connection with that, we had as at least seven hundred people die. Mm-hmm. Wow, seven hundred! Wow. Yeah. Also, things like propane heaters and um, perhaps electric generators. I mean, people really have to start to learn how to survive if everything shuts down. Right. Because Well, I, I hope that it doesn't come to that, but you may be right. It may require that level of disaster to wake people up. Uh, I'm, again, optimistic that uh, we, can, uh, we can view what's going on in Europe and Britain and that it doesn't need to happen here. But uh, wake up is what uh, people have to do. And again, I want to emphasize to our audience, uh, go to clearenergyalliance.com, uh, download Mark's movie, Fractured, and in 90 minutes, you will get the greatest ener- education on energy you could uh, ever imagine. And uh, Mark, uh, thank you ever so much for uh, giving us all this information on our show again. Uh, you, you're doing great work, and thanks for the compliment. Tom and I are working at it uh, 24-7, but I'm optimistic that we will wake up the nation uh, before life goes back to uh, 200 years ago in the uh, carbohydrate age rather than life today in the hydrocarbon age. I hope you're right. Yeah. Well, that's uh, was a great way to end the program. Uh, optimistic. I think you're right, Jay, that people have got to listen because otherwise we're going to have to have major suffering. So this is Tom Harris and Jay Lair signing out from the other side of the story with our guest today, Mark Mathis. Mm-hmm.